because when you're given the opportunity to care for America's sons and daughters, where there is nothing more honorable that you can do with your life, you want to be at the top of your game. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with Army Nurse Lieutenant Colonel Brandy DePoe. Brandy is a certified emergency nurse as well as a flight nurse who serves as the Chief of Clinical Operations for the Army Combat Paramedic Program at Joint Base San Antonio, Texas. She describes the fantastic training the military provides to advance the combat casualty skills of medics and how these skills will be utilized in potential future near-peer conflicts. She talks about her experiences providing en route care around the globe and provides advice for those who might consider a career in military medicine. Find out more about Lieutenant Colonel DePoe and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Nurse Corps Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Brandy DePoe to Wardox. Brandy, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, sir. Good to see you. Can you tell us a little bit about your pathway into military medicine? What motivated you to join the Army? So I'll start out with what motivated me to join the Army. So I actually joined in 2006, which was shortly after the surge in Iraq. At that point in time, I was a civilian trained level one trauma nurse and a flight nurse. And I truly felt that I possessed skills that could be beneficial to be part of a team to help at least one person make it home from that environment. So how did you get interested in critical care medicine? Sometimes I like to think that all nurses, when we grow up, we want to be either ICU or ER nurses. And at one point in time, I had the benefit of doing both. I truly thought I wanted to become a CRNA. And you really needed that critical care background in order to go to school to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist. So knowing that it was a motivating environment that was very busy from the time you stepped on the unit to the time you stepped off, that was all things that were of interest to me. When you decided to join the Army, was it an easy process? Did you just go to the recruiter? How did that work out? You know, nothing I think is easy. I just remember my SF-86, my security clearance paperwork back then, it was not computerized. And so I had like a 20-page PDF document to fill out, and that was just one part of it. So no, it was not easy. It was a multiple-month process. But I will tell you, I had a phenomenal recruiter who made my experience as streamlined as possible. And I tell everybody, he literally did stuff for me back in 05, 06, that I'm still reaping the benefits of today that I had no idea back then would even come as a either a bonus to my career or make my career more simple. So you've had the opportunity to serve in several interesting jobs as an Army nurse, including overseas in Korea, as well as the DOD's only level one trauma center at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. How would you say that the experience as a nurse is different in the military versus the civilian world since you were in that before for a while before you joined the military? And do you have any memorable stories that might help describe to our audience the differences in the unique aspects of serving in uniform? I will definitely say in the environments that I worked in the civilian sector to include Bentob General Hospital in Houston, Texas, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, and Atlanta Medical Center in Atlanta, Georgia. The healthcare disparities, the socioeconomic 
implications that you see in those environments sometimes differ from the impacts in military medicine. And by sometime, I mean about 98% of the time. In military medicine, we're blessed to have a captive audience, for the most part, captive population that has some form of healthcare coverage. Now, you speak about Brook Army Medical Center. It is the DOD's only level one trauma center in the inventory. So, which means it is the only facility that sees civilians as well as military. And so it's probably the first place in anyone's career, if you solely have entered the military post-college, that you're going to see those implications of how socioeconomic factors impact someone's access to care and the ability to follow up post whatever their injury or illness is. The differences that I saw, the implications of age and especially conditions that are not well controlled, such as diabetes, hypertension, that can all lead to chronic renal insufficiency and renal failure and someone being placed on dialysis. And then how their life is changed when they are on dialysis and their family's lives are changed. Decreases in access to care where it comes to cancer care and things like that. That's all part of the mindset that I brought with me into military medicine. And I think sometimes that it could benefit all specialties within the military, both our physician counterparts and our nurse counterparts, to do some time in some civilian hospitals to get that full spectrum idea of how all these pieces play together. Because I think in military medicine, we do some phenomenal and amazing things. One of the things that I think that we have room for growth is how we expose our service members to the relationship that happens in healthcare between their care team and the patient slash client is how I like to refer to them. So if you had the opportunity to deploy to any war zones and deliver care in that environment, and how is that different from your day-to-day job, let's say at Brook or in another military treatment facility in the United States? So most definitely, um, my predominant experience I like to use as a reference, I was blessed to deploy to Afghanistan with 4th ID as an in-route critical care nurse, so the Army's version of a flight nurse. Delivering care in the back of the UH-60, definitely number one, differed from my experience flying in the civilian sector. In the civilian sector, I flew in an A-star, which is a very small aircraft, and you're definitely up close and personal with your patient, the medic you fly with, and the pilot. When I stepped foot in the back of a UH-60, for me, it was honestly like a Cadillac or a very posh, let's say, apartment in New York because I had all of this room all of a sudden. But I will tell you the idea of being autonomous and independent and in that environment being the senior medical capability in the back of the aircraft and driving and delivering that care definitely changes your spectrum. At BAMC, some of the things that nurses face as a challenge is that because it is the largest institution for our residency programs, our residents must learn, right? But so must our nurses as well. And so a lot of times your nurse's hands are kind of tied a little bit because we want to wait to allow the resident the opportunity to investigate and assess the patient and make the decisions in the care pathway. Where in the civilian sector, we are definitely very focused on throughput. So driving door to disposition is imperative because that more so, I think, is driven into our minds in the civilian sector that it equates to money. And so with that, we're about delivering safe, excellent quality care, but it's more so in a compressed time frame, or at least that's what is driven in the civilian sector. In the military, we are coming around to that idea and being more focused. But I think that our autonomy as nurses is kind of challenged sometimes in that environment versus the operational environment where 
depending on where you are, whether it's a forward resuscitative surgical detachment, whether it's a field hospital or whether you're in my favorite environment in the back of the UH-60, you are making those decisions and you're making decisions at a higher caliber to the full scope of your practice. So your current job is the chief of clinical operations for the combat paramedic program at Fort Sam Houston. How'd you get involved in that course and what is your role there? I have the responsibility of setting up the clinical experience for the students who are part of the combat paramedic program. So it is a 30-week program that in the end will take the EMTs or emergency medical technicians that they come to us as and grow them and develop them to the point where they culminate in challenging the NREMT examination. So we are a program that falls under TRADOC and the Medical Center of Excellence that has a, I call, tri-phased approach. So we not only answer to TRADOC, we answer to USU, the Uniformed Services University, because our program is degree producing. And we also answer to COAMPS, which is what the entire civilian sector must answer to for any paramedic-based training. And so there are four blocks in the program, and block four is where they reach their endpoint of 30 days in hospital clinicals and two weeks of EMS capstone ride-alongs. And so it is my responsibility to make sure that that goes off to standard, but also seamlessly as we transition from the previous three blocks of education that they must undergo. So how is the the training or the course different from a civilian EMT paramedic course? That's a great question, sir. And a lot of people wonder because we do boast on average a 98% success rate with our NREMT paramedic examinations. And the civilian sector is very inquisitive about that. And other entities are as well because other military locations have relationships with civilian-based programs where they send their service members through those programs. But for us, you got to think about it. So in the civilian sector, most often it takes two years for an individual to become a paramedic. And that's because the individual also is working full time. They have a family, they have responsibilities. And so they must squeeze in their didactic education and their clinicals while they're still working full time and doing those family responsibilities. So for us, we do it in that compressed time frame of 30 weeks because these individuals come to us and they're ours 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's considered a PCS. We serve all three compos, so National Guard Reserve and active. And during their time here, they don't have those worries that they may necessarily have elsewhere. They're not having to juggle their studies and working full time. They're able to come to us, go to school Monday through Friday, go to their clinicals whenever they see fit and still pay attention to their family responsibilities because their families are able to PCS here if they choose to bring them. What kind of training do they need before they're accepted into this course? So they must be EMTs. And when you think about it, our 68 Whiskey they are all EMTBs. And so this is a prior service program. It is considered to be something that they will re-enlist for this option. So they come to us as seasoned 68 whiskeys. On average, our average student has at least five years worth of experience. Most of our students are E5 and above. We have a very slim sprinkling of E4s, but usually they're senior E4s getting ready to promote to E5. So once they leave the military, does the course provide certifications that allow them to work in comparable civilian type locations and levels? Well, because we service all three combos, that's imperative, right? So flashback to the NDAA of 2014, when guidance was put into place that said that if there was a specialty in the civilian sector that the military should strive and adhere 
to those responsibilities as well. And that's when we kind of began to make that transition to where we are today. So as mentioned, we are COAMS accredited and adhere to all of those, which allows them to be nationally registered licensed paramedics. So for the other two compos that we serve, they go straight home to home station and they're able to work as paramedics. For your active component, of course, they must fulfill whatever contract they have. And when they're ready to ETS or retire, they're able to take that certification out to the civilian sector. But the combat paramedic program is actually course number one in a three-phase pipeline that actually grows and develops the next generation of Army flight medics. So you mentioned that it services all three components. So that's the reserves, National Guard, and active duty. How about the tri-services? What do the Air Force and Navy do to train their paramedics and flight paramedics? So the Air Force has its own program for paramedicine out at Lackland, and they do their own internal certifications in order to develop their flight paramedics. And for the Navy, currently, they actually use a course that's similar to what I took. They actually go on to go to Jack, the Joint In-Route Care course, and Air Force can go there as well to learn about in-route critical care, and that services officers and enlisted. So what exactly is the role of a combat paramedic? In operational medicine scenarios, what are they actually doing at the point of injury or at the front line in battle? Well, there's an old adage that says, if you stay around trying to get ready, you'll never really be ready, right? And so as we make this transition into multi-domain operations and large-scale combat operations, one of the things that became a paramount component was what were we going to do about prolonged care? It is not an idea that we're going to own the skies in the future. So where we became very comfortable with the idea of setting up an LZ and calling, dropping a nine line and calling in a medevac and having those one hour tactical rings, we'll see that we've made a transition that number one, no longer does that one hour golden hour that we got so comfortable with, they're actually expounding that, right? Because of the ideas behind prolonged care. And they're even doing that in the civilian sector as well. So your combat paramedics are most commonly going to be seen in the environment such as the PCAT, the prolonged care augmentation detachment, where we are going to be sitting on patients for a very long period of time. Your FRSDs, your forward resuscitated surgical detachments by doctrine only have approximately 72 hours of holds capabilities. And so as they need to push forward, as the operational environment evolves and their higher headquarters move forward, they're going to need to go. But what happens to the patients that they were sitting on that they cannot get out by air evac or by ground evacuation? And so that's where the combat paramedic comes into play. They will be sprinkled within your field units, your force comm units, but their predominant employment location is going to be within the PCAT as well as your FOX 2s or your flight paramedics who won't be able to fly because we can't get an aircraft off the ground. What kind of procedures are they doing? Are they doing cricothyroidotomies, needle decompressions, chest tubes, IO access? What what kind of things are they expected to know how to do? So all of the things you just mentioned, along with long-term management of ventilated patients, but with this program and the way that it's evolved, understanding those prolonged capabilities, they also, within their clinical environment, get a great exposure to basic nursing care. Because when you're sitting on patients for a long period of time, you run the risk of what? Getting decubitus ulcers, skin breakdowns, and various types of infections. And so giving them that component of basic nursing care allows them to intercede and hopefully thwart off those negative side effects that can lead someone to sepsis and death. 
you kind of mentioned it before that you can train all you want, but until you really get in the game, that's when you find out if you've got what it takes. How realistic is the training that's undergoing in the course and what what could be done to make it even better? The course itself is broken down into four different blocks. And so the first block is anatomy and physiology, where they literally take college level A&P, similar to what you took in college, sir, and what I took. They spend time in the anatomy and physiology lab, not only identifying those structures that they're learning about, but also performing procedures such as the ones that you just mentioned. Block two, they go on to, and that's metemergencies. And that's where they learn the pharmacology and pharmacokinetics behind the medications that they'll be administering and what it actually does to the body and how it either fixes or could worsen a condition if, if not given properly. Block three is operational medicine, and that's where we actually see where the rubber meets the road. They take the things that they've learned in block one and block two, and now we take them out to Camp Bullis in an operational environment and something that really is reminiscent of an FRSD where they're going to be sitting on patients for a prolonged period of time, and they do night ops and day ops to really expose them and push them to their limits. And I can only imagine where it comes to being in the Army and being medical. We all find our way to Fort Sam Houston, right? At some point in time, the beginning of our career, the end of our career, our professional military education, it's hot here. And so we definitely stress them out in that environment. Like right about now, I think it's about 108 degrees outside and block three just finished training. So learning what the implications are of these environments on not only themselves so they can recognize how to better take care of themselves, but also the implications of what they'll need to do to their patient population in various different environments. Now, we get a little cold in the winter, nothing that rivals Russia or China, but we are able to manifest and make situations and scenarios that will definitely test them and trial their critical thinking and their clinical thinking. And so not only environmental things, but noise and sleep deprivation, those are all things that are part of this training so they can get used to making decisions when they haven't had an opportunity to sleep for a while or have a full belly or whatever, right? Yeah. And also making these decisions when it's just you, right? So it's a lot different if one of my combat paramedics was in an environment with yourself as a as a physician, right? Or even myself and my experience. It'd be a little bit different if they had someone to bounce some of these ideas off. And so some of them may very well find themselves in situations like I mentioned finding myself in being the senior medical clinical person that's there. And all you really have is your standard operating guidelines to kind of guide you and using what I've referred to as kind of your sixth sense on when you've kind of gotten to your end state. And we have talked about the opportunities for telehealth and telemedicine, but each and every one of us in the military may find ourselves somewhere someday where you don't have that connectivity and you're having to do the best thing that you possibly can for your patient, or at least what you're being guided to understand based on what you're seeing. You're trained as a flight nurse. How is that role different from a flight paramedic? And where would you find a flight nurse on the battle space? So the great thing is, is that I actually can do all of the things that they do. Our flight paramedics are guided by what we call the SMOG. It's the Standard Medical Operating Guidelines. It is something that we actually update within our program through the guidance of our aviation folks down in Alabama. And along with that, that's what they use as their Bible. So for myself, being able to do all of the things that they can do, including intubate RSI, and where we discovered it's best to have someone like myself as an in-route critical care nurse augment them 
because number one, we can maximize the number of patients that we can extract off the battlefield, really fully loading that UH-60 as far as we can go. And I'm able to focus on the sickest patient. And then we kind of break down the care rules with the residual patients who are on the aircraft. So someone like myself, you find us embedded within aviation units across the world. We augment and the Army in the past five years came up with the idea of actually creating an ASI or additional skill identifier for in-route critical care nurses. And so individuals who have the desire to perform that job are able to submit their request to their leadership, go to JEC, the Joint In-Route Care course, and as long as they can pass their flight physical, because we do have to pass the same flight physical as our flight paramedic counterparts, they're able to get the ASI of Mike 5. And that is how the Army is able to detail the ACCNs that are in the inventory. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about telemedicine and, and that technology of communicating, phoning a friend on the battlefield. How would you say that technology is changing how we train for future conflicts? And how do you see unmanned aerial vehicles, robotics, artificial intelligence impacting the roles of the personnel involved in, in root care? So number one, it's it's not a hidden fact and I'm not breaking any G2 or security. Right now, we don't possess the amount of things that we're going to need to ensure dominance on the battlefield. The Army has been aggressively fighting to increase its technological advancements and opportunities so that we're able to get our sick and injured off the battlefield as quickly as possible. Telemedicine, not only handheld devices that our ground medics or our flight medics are going to have, that are going to help to guide them through clinical procedures, incorporating fast exams into our flight paramedics inventory so they're better able to, to ascertain and diagnose their patient and their needs are going to be paramount. You spoke about the unmanned aircrafts. You know, recently we had a successful trial of an unmanned Blackhawk aircraft with the intent that we will have the ability someday to have more of those in the battlefield space that will allow us to more rapidly get patients off the ground because we're not going to be able to make or manifest the amount of pilots or additional crew that will be required. And so we are aggressively attempting here at Fort Sam Houston to upramp the quantities of flight paramedics and in-route critical care nurses so that we can fight and win and destroy in the battlefield of the future. And when you are fighting a peer, because we've excelled past near peer onto our current adversaries, Russia and China, that we have been attempting to fight off aggressions, we have individuals that their toys in the battlefield space equal ours. And so it's going to be surely about increasing those quantities and numbers so that we're able to ultimately destroy and win on the battlefield. And I think you made a good point before that we may not have these technologies at our fingertips because we're denied bandwidth or whatever. And so we still have to have those basic skills, which requires time at the bedside, time in the wards, taking care of patients, and maybe relying on a blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope, even though it seems to the younger folks like, wow, that stuff seems so outdated when we got cool ultrasound technology, but we may not have that. And also medical maintenance, right? What if you're somewhere that you don't have exact access to medical maintenance and keeping those things up? And the Army does a really great job of putting equipment into the inventory that will stand the test of the operational environment. But just as evidenced by picking up your cell phone and it not doing what you need it to do, 
technology is great until it doesn't work. And so some of the skills that you just mentioned, the basic skills, people have become far too comfortable with automated blood pressures. And you asked me earlier about a story that would kind of paint the picture or give an insight into my experience. So I remember in Afghanistan, we had eight nine line drops for multiple patients up in TAC North, which during my time frame there became a very area of just a lot of tension, we'll just say. And because of that, it was imperative that we got up there and they were expecting six to 10 patients. So we went ahead and launched four aircrafts, which is not normally, we normally just go what we call med chase. So just two aircrafts, but we knew the numbers would outweigh what two aircrafts could safely take. And so we got up there to the LZ, which was in a fairly unsecured area, loaded our patients and got the heck out of there. And I remember the very first patient that was put on my aircraft was on a litter. He made eye contact with me. I made eye contact with him. We kind of what's up each other because neither one of us can hear each other. I put him on the pro pack and I initially hit start. And then they loaded the second patient on a litter on my aircraft. I put that patient on the Zoll and I hit start on the blood pressure and had the pulse ox on both. And I looked on the pro pack thinking my results should be back already. And it said error. And so I put it on the person's other arm, hit start again, went over to my other patient. The Zoll came back, blood pressure was stable. He looked at me, I looked at him. We both gave thumbs up. And then I went back to the other one. It said error again. And so I swapped and hit start on the Zoll. And when the blood pressure came back, it was barely 60 pelp. Now this guy was looking at me and I was looking at him. We had taken off by that point in time. And we had our third patient on the aircraft, which was a walkie-talkie, who began to vomit. So I'm trying to help him with his vomiting and get him secured into his jump seat. And then I'm looking at my patient with his 60 blood pressure. I'm in an environment that I really can't get a good manual blood pressure because I can't hear. Now, there are some things that you can do with a manual where you can kind of read the dial and you can cross-correlate your results, but it just wasn't proving to be successful. So now it's a point in time where I've got to do a good assessment on my patient. I looked at him on the front side. I didn't see any injuries. I was told that he had a gunshot wound to the leg. I didn't see anything on the legs. I rolled this gentleman who was still making good eye contact with me to find two chest seals to his back. So he wasn't the injury that we thought he was. And so that initially let me know that it was time for blood products. And so I went down my pathways of at that point in time, I gave a little fluid, I gave a little TXA, I started my blood and went down that line. But I've got an hour and a half flight back to where we're dropping this person off at. And so to me, that was very reminiscent on the trust but verify concept, right? So love your, love your equipment. I QC'd my equipment that day, just like I QC'd it every day and QC'd it in flight. And it literally was the patient. And we got a confusion of a report on the ground, which happens because it's battlefield operational environment. And you've got to use the great skills that you're provided to figure out what you need to do when you need to do it and do it as rapidly as possible so that you can save lives. Yeah, that's such a great point because you're not treating the monitor. You're not treating the lab result. You're treating the patient and, and understanding what's going on requires some of those face-to-face and hands-on skills. So what advice would you give a college or nursing school student interested in pursuing a career in military medicine? The first thing that I would do is I would honestly have a sit-down discussion on some realism, right? Because it is the Army. We do deploy. We live in a world where tomorrow may find us in an operational environment. So there are amazing and excellent things that the Army can provide, right? So the Army not only put me through school, 
And I am a mother of four. The army actually put all four of my children through school to the point where we're now on my youngest and all four of them will be able to exit college debt-free, which is phenomenal in this day and age. So where those are amazing benefits, I was also afforded the opportunity to get my master's degree in the army. But I also needed to remember that medical readiness is imperative. And not only along with medical readiness, there are responsibilities I have in service. So I've got to get my professional military education. So I couldn't come in the army and just think like, oh, well, no more college for me, no more classes for me. They're always going to continue. And I needed to remember to put service before self. So where I've gained more than I can ever give back, that's one of the paramount things that I would have that transparent discussion with that individual. I would also encourage them to think about really getting the opportunity to soak up anything that came their way, even if they thought that they weren't interested in doing it. Taking the time to be exposed to an environment, not only you're going to learn invaluable things, but you'll also have the opportunity to decide what you're good at and where your weaknesses lie and where you may need to work at bettering yourself. Because when you're given the opportunity to care for America's sons and daughters, where there is nothing more honorable that you could do with your life, you want to be at the top of your game. You recently were promoted to and pinned on Lieutenant Colonel, which in the Army is a big deal. And that tells people that the Army has faith in you that you can be a leader and have responsibilities that are, are pretty significant. What is a leadership lesson or principle that you know now that you wish you'd learned much earlier in your career? So many mentors and many leaders in my early years attempted to plant the seed of the importance of counseling. I think that we put a negative connotation on counseling when there are positive benefits that can be held from it. Sometimes people do things in a way that might not be the best way to do it or the most optimal because nobody ever told them. And taking the time to sit down with your subordinates and really talk about in full transparency their performance, their actions as an officer or as this or and the specialty that they provide the army is imperative and also helping them to understand the importance of realizing that yes, you're 100% correct. I'm a nurse who also happens to be in the army, but really what I am is a soldier first. And so if I approach my actions and my decisions from the mindset of a soldier first, then a commissioned officer, and then lastly, whatever the army pays me for, I can never go wrong. So planting those seeds, I think, is important because nobody can be held at fault if they're repeating the same things if nobody told them that they could do it better. So if we have listeners who are interested in finding out more about some of these opportunities that, that you've discussed, both in nursing, paramedic training, flight paramedics, what's the next step for them? So we can certainly make our links to the program where the descriptors and the general email box. If you're military, I'm the only Duco in the Army. The other one was my husband. He retired. So I am available on Outlook at any moment's notice. And I would be happy to either answer your question or direct you to the person who can answer your question. And we can put some links to websites uh, along with the show notes for this to, to help people. We've been speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Brandy Dupoe on Wardock's podcast. Brandy, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. Really appreciate the information that you provided. And thank you for your service to this nation. Sir, thank you for your service and thank you for all that you do. 
Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.